say the Creed without qualification. I mean actually both the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed because both of these are authoritative uh, in our church and really throughout all of Western Christianity. And as a reminder, the Creed is something that arose organically from the very earliest centuries of Christianity. This is not something that developed later on in church history. This goes way back, maybe even to the earliest decades of the church. And it arose out of catechesis. That's the pre-baptismal teaching that would prepare candidates for the faith that they were about to seal in the sacrament of baptism. That's what baptism is. It's the sealing of our faith. But that begs the question, what is the faith that we are sealing? And so catechesis was there to train the catechumens and teach them that Christian faith, as opposed to some other faith, is a faith that is in the Father and in the Son and in the Holy Spirit. And so since this threefold confession is the confession of our faith in baptism, it therefore structured catechesis and therefore it becomes the substructure or outline of the creed that arose from that catechesis process. So again, as a reminder of where this thing comes from. So when we say the creed, we confess that we believe in the Father. And we had several lessons um, early on on the Father and his role as creator. But we also believe in the Son. And we had lots of lessons on the Son. And particularly that, that expansion that occurs in the middle of the creed, that during that second article, where it gives us what we call the gospel, the, the story of Christ from his incarnation until his return and the judging of the living and the dead. This is the, these are the events in history through which God is bringing salvation to our race and restoring his kingdom. And uh, However, we can't just stop there. The Christian faith has not been fully expressed yet. We are not binitarian. That would be believing in a tunis in oneness. That's not Christian. So Christian faith is trinitarian. It believes in a threeness in oneness. We don't believe only in the Father. We don't believe only in the Son and the Father together. We also believe, thirdly, in the Holy Spirit. So let's begin the way we normally do, by reading from the Creed, starting with the Apostles' Creed, which is very short and is in bold. I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's it. The Apostles' Creed has to say. All right, now the Nicene Creed. And the only thing we skip is nothing. There's nothing we skip. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified, who spoke through the prophets. All right, and now the composite expansion. And again, as a reminder, this is not authoritative. I keep saying that because I just want you to, to, to understand that. But these are words that the church used in its liturgy, so they're more than just uh, any words whatsoever. I believe in one Holy Spirit, the Paraclete, the Spirit of Truth, the Lord and Giver of Life, uncreated and perfect, unchangeable, who is everywhere present and fills all things and is contained in no place, who works freely by his own power as he wills and not as a minister, who is simple in his nature and manifold in his operations, the fountain of divine gifts, who proceeds from the Father, 
who is of the same eternity and substance with the Father and the Son, who shares the throne of the Father's glorious kingdom together with the Son, who with the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified, who spoke in the law and through the prophets and in the New Testament, who descended at the Jordan in the form of a dove, and who on the day of Pentecost was sent as the Lord of the Apostles upon the holy apostles. And the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, what is the Holy Spirit? What is He? Now, uh, today we're going to be talking about what Orthodoxy says in the Creed about who the Holy Spirit is and his role and his uh, relationship to the Holy Trinity. Next week, and probably the week after, we'll actually get into what I think will be more fun, which is what he does, his activity, and his role in the economy of salvation. That's something that's very dear to my heart, and I think you'll really enjoy that. But first, we have to lay the groundwork. We have to establish, first of all, who it is we're talking about. So again, what is the Holy Spirit? And I say what, not who, because we first have to establish that we can even speak of a who. You see, recent polling in the, here in America in the past few decades has consistently shown a very startling and, and uh, an alarming fact. As much as 70% of American Christians, those who say I'm a Christian, it doesn't matter the denomination, 70% of American Christians, and for evangelicals, the number only drops to between 50 and 60%, say that the Holy Spirit is not a personal living being like the Father and the Son is. That he is rather something like a divine force, an impersonal energy. Sort of like Star Wars. You know, may the force be with you. But the key thing is that the force is not a person. It's just a thing. As neo-pantheism becomes more and more popular in our culture, and it is, uh, this idea will become more and more attractive. I mean, just think of it from the perspective of the world. You get to have an apersonal force that gives you all of the connectedness and the mystery and the power that you would want that satisfies that human itch, you know, for the spiritual and the numinous, but without any of the obligations that come with a relationship with a person who has a will and a mind and who has authority and calls us into and underneath that authority. But you can do away with all of that and just get the fun stuff. And so we can understand why the world is attracted to this neo-pantheistic idea. But why in the world do we see Christians falling into the same kind of thinking when it comes to the Holy Spirit? Well, part of the reason um, may be, well, part of the, certainly much of the reason is simply a lack of teaching. There's no question. Um, but there's also other factors that make this a little more complicated. And that is, first of all, think of his, think of his name. What do we call the Holy Spirit? When you say Father and Son, what do you think of? When I say Father, you think of a person. When I say Son, you think of a person. And those names are, um, they invite the masculine pronoun. You know, the words Father and Son invite us to say He and Him. And so it's, it's natural that we should think of them as persons. These are relational, personal terms. They invite that kind of thinking. But the Holy Spirit, that term, is not a relational term. It says nothing about his relationships with anybody else. Furthermore, what is a spirit? Has anyone ever seen a spirit? 
And we have an idea of what it might be, but it, it's a much harder thing to grasp in our minds than the concrete image of the Father and Son. To make matters worse, and this is not a problem in Hebrew or in uh, Latin, but it is a problem in Greek, which is the language of the New Testament, the word for spirit is in the neuter gender. It's one of those languages that have not only masculine and feminine for all the nouns, but neuter as well. And unfortunately, the word pluma, or spirit, is a neuter noun. The neuter tends to attract the pronoun it. So we can understand why some people might begin to think that the Holy Spirit is a thing, a force, an it. But this would be profoundly wrong. Jesus taught the church to baptize, and by doing this, by the way, this wasn't just a liturgical formula that was just, you know, here's your prayer book. He was actually communicating the essence of the Christian faith. When he said, baptize in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And in so doing, he placed all three of them on the same plane. He put them all in the same category. So whatever's true of the Father and the Son is true of the Holy Spirit as well. If they are living beings with personality, so is the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, the Bible attributes things to the Spirit that can only be true of a person. Now, range in your mind, think in your mind, some of the things that the Bible says, especially the New Testament, about the Holy Spirit. We're told that He wills, that He distributes gifts As he pleases, that he groans within us, that he intercedes for us, that he yearns jealously, that he lusts against the flesh, which means he desires strongly in us the opposite of what the flesh desires, that he speaks like a person speaks in the book of Revelation to the churches. And long before that, he spoke through the prophets of both Old and New Testaments, so much so that when you quote the prophets or any part of Scripture that he inspired, you don't don't have to say, David said this, or Moses said, you can't say that, but you can also say, the Holy Spirit said, and New Testament authors regularly did that. The Spirit separated Paul and Barnabas. He said, separate to me Paul and Barnabas for the work that I have for them. He um, appoints and made others bishops in the church. He convinces, rebukes. All this comes from the Testament. He bears witness. He searches the heart of man and knows the deep things of God. Romans says that he has a mind, the mind of the Spirit that the Father knows. He guides. He teaches. He can be tested. You don't want to do that. He can be. He can be blasphemed. And he can be grieved. Doesn't sound like the force, does it? Not at all. We must conclude, in light of this, that the Holy Spirit is a person. He has his own self-consciousness, his own self-awareness, his own identity, and his own set of relationships. Everything that is involved in personhood, the Holy Spirit has. But the Holy Spirit is not just a person, he is also a distinct person. This is an important note because the church had 
problems very early on with heresies that tended to collapse the three persons of the Trinity together. The Spirit is not the Father. Come, in, you know, in a different form. The Spirit is the Son who has come back to us in some new mode or some new shape. He is a third person. He is distinct from them and not to be confused with them. And this is a beautiful thing. Because within the inner life of the Trinity, there's this intercommunion, this relationship of inner divine love and joy and gladness between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are always in one another. They are always cooperating with one another. They are always rejoicing in one another and glorifying one another. It was together that they said, let us make man according to our image. It was together that they sought after fallen man to restore him. And it will be together that they will complete that task. And, and here's the amazing thing. At the end, they will draw into their communion, their fellowship, an innumerable company of redeemed human beings who will share in and in some measure partake of this communion, this fellowship, this mutual love and joy between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We get to stick our fingers into the penumbra, the outer edges of the glow of this unspeakable relationship for all eternity. If you erase the distinctions of the persons you lose relationship. And all of this goes away. So you see, the very blessedness that we await is in grounded in part in the distinct personality of the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful thing. But we must not overemphasize the distinctions. <clears throat> Most heresies and false teaching in the church isn't completely wrong ideas, but rather somewhat right ideas that get overemphasized. They get blown out of proportion and they end up squeezing out other equally important truths. And the same thing here did happen. The fourth century was a century of much, much conflict in the church. And largely it was around a heresy known as Arianism. This is a heresy where the distinctions between the Trinity, and this was mostly an Eastern issue than a Western, were being overblown. And it got so bad that they began to rank the members of the Trinity according to the fullness of their deity. Now the Father, he's the true God. But the Son, he's like a, a diminished God. He's like a lowercase g. We, we just call him God because he's, he's a super being, but he's not the same as the God the Father. And the Spirit, well, he's even less than that. He's just a creature. He's, he's a minister like the angels. And so this, of course, I'm caricaturing it in the worst form, right? But this was very much what was going on. And so out of this struggle, the church learned to state that the Son is true God of true God, that is, of the Father. And that he is also of the same substance as the Father, consubstantial, the same essence, the same being is the way we translate it, with the Father. In less, he was less in no respect from the Father except for in origin, right, remember? The Father has no origin. He has no source. He didn't have a cause. The Son does. He comes from the Father. And in that alone, the Father has primacy. 
But in everything else, everything that the Father possesses and everything that he is, except for being Father, whether it's glory or kingdom or power or deity or eternity, the Son possesses in full measure, in equal measure. Now this is the faith that was set down once and for all and forever in the year 325 at the Council of Nicaea. But nothing was said about the Spirit. Now this is the original Nicene Creed. We don't actually say it. No one actually says this Creed. We say an updated version, actually a different version that we call the Nicene Creed that came about 60 years later. But in the original Nicene Creed of 325, it ends with simply this. We believe in the Holy Spirit. Period. End of story. There's nothing left except for a string of anathemas. That wasn't the battle they were fighting back then. They had to deal with the Son first. They had to get that out of the way before they could turn and deal with the Holy Spirit. Well, that's what happened. Half a century later, they're finally getting to put out some of the, most of the Aryan fires. Some of it would spring back up in the West, especially with the Germanic tribes. Um, and pester the West for centuries. But most of it in the East, where it really mattered, was pretty much put down about a half century later. Unfortunately, however, just about the time that they were finally putting this ghost to rest, a new subspecies of Aryan pops up, and these are called the Macedonians, or the, I love this word, the Plumatomaki. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds evil, doesn't it? That means those who fight against the spirit. Obviously, this was a pejorative label used against them. These new crop of heretics, we're, we're saying that the Holy Spirit, uh, we're saying that the Son, okay, we, we agree the Son is equal to the Father. He's consubstantial with the Father. Yes, yes. But the Holy Spirit is, right? He's, he's a creature. He's, he's a minister like the angels are. Um, he has to obey God, and therefore he himself is not God. And therefore, we shouldn't be worshiping him. And we shouldn't be glorifying him as if he were God because that would be idolatry. And we don't want to do that. That's the way they were thinking. Well, in the year uh, 381, bishops gathered together and after the Macedonian bishops left, because they saw which way the tide was turning, what remained were 150 Orthodox bishops. And these bishops together adopted a new creed the Constantinopolitan Creed, because this was in Constantinople, the new Rome, the new this is the empire, the, the capital of the new empire in the east. And this is the creed we say every Sunday, that the whole church says, that we call the Nicene Creed, because it's the same faith. Um, but it is a new creed, and in this creed, they corrected the wrong ideas about the spirit. But they did so in a pastorally sensitive way. They didn't whack them over the head with a, with a, with a two-by-four actually somewhat compromised the language they used in order to not uh, offend their opponents more than they needed to. Have you noticed that this, the creed we say doesn't explicitly call the Spirit God? It says that about the Son. It calls Him true God. It doesn't say that about the Holy Spirit. It also doesn't say that He is consubstantial or of the same being with the Father. It says that about the Son. It doesn't say that about the Spirit. Now, the bishops who wrote the creed believed those things. But they, weren't, they felt it was best not to explicitly state them because it was too in-your-face and offensive. And they had just got finished with a half-century of all kinds of nasty, heartbreaking struggle in the church. And they just didn't have the, 
They just didn't want to repeat the same problem with the Holy Spirit. And so they kind of softened their language in order to have you a little more pastorally sensitive. And God blessed that. Because the Macedonian heresy was put down, and it wasn't long before the church was behind closed doors saying, he's consubstantial and he's God too. So it achieved what they wanted to achieve. Um, if you read between the lines, actually you don't have to read between the lines, if you think about what they did say, the conclusion that the Spirit is fully God is very much present. So I want to think about that right now. What does the Creed say? Go ahead and look at your at the Nicene Creed at the top. What does it say about the Spirit? First of all, the first thing it says is the Holy Spirit is the Lord. The Lord. A Lord is the opposite of a minister. A minister obeys. A Lord commands. A minister executes the will of another, whether he wants to or not. He doesn't have a choice in that. A Lord executes his own will. Now, this is not the case with ministers such as angels. They are true subordinates. They might have a different will than God. But it doesn't matter what their will is. They have to obey. That's what a minister is. The creed says the Holy Spirit is not like that. The Spirit is in the category of Lord, not of servant. He's in the category of master, not minister. He's in the category of king, not subject. And that is a category that belongs to God alone. The second thing the creed says about the Spirit is that he is the giver of life. Once again, the bishops are getting their message through without being overly explicit. The giver of life is the opposite of the creature who receives life as a gift from his creator. The creature's life is dependent on another. Our very existence is what we call contingent. That means unnecessary. We don't have to exist. It's not necessary that we exist. In fact, if God were to pull back the sustaining power that is every moment sustaining us in being, we wouldn't just die. We'd cease to exist. And that is true of men as well as of angels. But the creed says the Holy Spirit is not amongst the receivers of life. He's the giver of it. He's the one life in all its forms, physical, spiritual, of all creatures. He's the one life comes from. He is the source of our life, of the life of all that exists. And that places him utterly outside of the category of the creature. He is ranged alongside the Father and the Son and in the category of creator and sustainer, giver of life. So once again... The Holy Spirit is clearly being taught as being God. Thirdly, um, we'll skip the next phrase and come to the phrase afterward. The Holy Spirit is with the Father and the Son, worshipped and glorified. And the key word here in this phrase is the word, that little preposition, with. With. You see, the Creed says that the Spirit is to receive worship. As only God is to receive worship, together with the Father and the Son. It also says He is to be glorified with the glory due to God, together with the 
Father and the Son. This happens, for example, in the Gloria. Um, now, this is actually what got the Macedonians or the Pneumatomachi all riled up. Um, St. Basil, in his church, he was a, one of the great theologians of the day, um, the old form of the Gloria was glory be to the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. Uh, and Basil didn't get rid of that. He still might very much believe that. But he started sometimes substituting it with a new form. Glory be to the Father with the Son, with the Holy Spirit. What it, what he, was, he, was, he, was, he was doing it intentionally against the Macedonians, but he was saying, we're elevating and making sure you understand that they receive the same glory. And, and today we do the same thing when we have it use our form, which is glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. So whether it's with, 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 or and, 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 ever since the 4th century, in response to this heresy, the church has been intentionally coordinating the glory that we render to all three so that we understand we don't give more glory to the Father and less to the Son and even less to the Spirit. And this, of course, got the heretics all upset because they didn't believe the Holy Spirit was God. And so they said, if you're giving the Spirit the glory due to God alone, you're committing idolatry. You're giving divine glory to a creature. <clears throat> well, the bishops got together and they answered in the creed <clears throat> when they set out very clearly, no, we're not giving glory to the creature. We're giving glory to the Spirit with the Father and the Son, and it's not less glory, and it's not a different glory, it's the same glory. And you're right, it would be idolatrous to give glory to the creature. Therefore, what's the conclusion? He's not a creature. That was the clear that was the clear conclusion here. Yes, it would be idolatry to worship or give glory you know, in, the, in a divine sense to someone who is a creature only. And we're going to give glory to the Spirit because he's not a creature, he's God. He is an equal sharer in the divine nature, and therefore he is worthy of equal glory. This means, by the way, that you can pray to the Holy Spirit if you would like. Now, it's always good to maintain the, the normal order of prayer that the church has always observed. We pray primarily to the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit. That's a good form. But you are free to pray directly to the Holy Spirit if you want to. And nobody can tell you that that's wrong or they're actually committing heresy because he's God. You can also adore the Holy Spirit. With There's no limit to the amount of adoration that is appropriate to the Spirit because he is God just as the Father and the Son are. You can pledge yourself to the Spirit. You can say to the Spirit, My God, because He is. Every honor that is fitting and appropriate to the Father and the Son is fitting and appropriate to give to the Spirit as well. And that is not idolatry, because He is not a creature. He is less in no degree than the Son. He is less in no degree than the Father, except only in the, in, in the case of being... Having a cause, right? The Father has no cause, no origin. The Son and the Spirit take their origin from the Father. That and that alone gives the Father a primacy. But in nothing else, in everything else, the Father has given all that He has and all that He is to the Spirit and the Son in full, complete measure. There is only one throne in the universe, one kingdom, one power, and one divine nature, but that is participated in fully and enjoyed equally 
by all three in perfect harmony. Well, by the end of the 4th century, the Church had finally settled its Orthodox language concerning the Spirit. The Church had always thought of the Spirit in a, as, a, as divine. It just took a while to iron the language out and, and all the details. And it finally was able to do that at the end of the 4th century. And almost immediately, as I had mentioned before, um, the per- Church picked up on this really quickly. Anaphoras, or the Eucharistic prayers, the priest prays the Mass, um, very soon, very quickly thereafter, adopted phrases directly from the tree, specifically about the Holy Spirit. And they went further, and they actually started saying in the Eucharistic prayer that he is true God, and that he is consubstantial with the Father. So the bishop's meaning came through. And that has been the church's faith ever since. Well, I would love to um, end here, just wrap up our lesson, and end on a, on a good note and say everybody lived happily ever after. But I can't. Unfortunately, we have a little bit of bad news. I have a sad story to tell you, and it is a story of human failure. I wish I could skip this. It's not the most uplifting subject, uh, but ignorance is not a blessing, and this is something that has impacted the church enormously, and so we should at least be aware of it. So I just want to give you a 50,000-foot view of something very sad that took place, and it has to do with this part of the creed. I heard it when we read the creed. Somebody was paying attention because I heard a mistake and it actually wasn't a mistake. It was understandable and I expected it. What's missing from the creed that we read this morning? That's right. And the son. Later in the service, we're going to say the words who proceeds from the father and the son because that's what's printed in our prayer book and we're good followers of the prayer book. But that's actually not part of the creed. The prayer book adds it to our recitation of the creed because that's a long-standing practice that we've inherited in the West that goes back many, 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 many centuries. The creed of Constantinople, or what we call the Nicene Creed, says, who proceeds from the Father, period. Now the emphasis is not on the word Father, the emphasis is on the word proceeds. That's how we distinguish the Holy Spirit from the Son. If they both come from the Father, how do you tell them apart? The church says, well, we use different verbs. The Son is begotten of the Father. The Spirit proceeds from the Father. And so we use these two verbs in order to distinguish their mode of eternally coming into being so that we don't confuse and collapse the Son and the Spirit together. And this is what the Creed was saying. The Creed was saying that the Holy Spirit isn't created like the angels are, or like we are. He comes uniquely from the Father, just like the Son comes from the Father, but in His own way, in a different mode, in a different way. And that's what the Creed was trying to say. But near the end of the 4th century, basically about the time that this Creed was being penned, and in the early 5th century, this distinction between between Son and Holy Spirit that is the mode of their coming into being, begotten versus proceeding. This distinction wasn't enough for some theologians in the West. Um, They wanted to distinguish the Son and the Holy Spirit by who they come from. They said the Son comes from the Father, but the Spirit comes from both Father and Son together. That's what makes him unique. 
That's how we don't confuse him with the Son. He's got a different set of relationships. The most famous theologian who propounded this was no less than Augustine himself. And of course, if you know anything about Augustine, this was the single most influential and greatest theologian in the Western Church. The East doesn't even know who he is, hardly. In the Western Church that we've ever had. So his opinion has enormous weight. It carries the conversation for centuries to come. And Augustine famously said, and he wasn't the first, this wasn't his idea, by the way. Uh, Ambrose, his teacher before him, had taught this. And there was a couple of others about that time period. This idea was basically just getting its legs. But Augustine really took it and ran with it. And he said that the Holy Spirit is the love that exists between the Father and Son. Now, he didn't mean that in an abstract sense. He's not denying his personality. So it's love as a hypostasis, as a person, right? But he says you have the Father and the Son, and they have this relationship of love, and the Holy Spirit is that relationship. That was Augustine's way of putting it together. And that's a fascinating idea. Whether it's right or not is not the point. The point is, is that it has a significant implication. If the Spirit comes from the relation, if He is the relationship of the Father and the Son, then He comes from not one of them, but both of them together, because He comes from the relationship between the two. And so you have to say the Spirit comes from the Father and the Son, and that's what Augustine began to say, along with several others in the West. Now, initially, <clears throat> this wasn't a big problem, because it's just a private opinion. And we're free to have private opinions. Pastors and teachers are free to even teach private opinions in their churches. That's what we do all the time. There's lots of ideas about lots of things in Christianity. But the problem is, is this private opinion began to spread, and spread rapidly, and it soon take, took over in the West and became gradually considered dogma. So that gradually, to deny it, began to be thought of as heresy in the West. Sometime between the 6th and the 8th century, we don't know exactly when, so sometime between the 500s and the 700s, probably in the area of Gaul or Spain, so France, Spain, Pyrenees, Mountains, that area, the churches in the West started adding the words and the sun to the Constantinopolitan Creed that the whole world by then, or most of the world, was reciting as part of their mass. Because it had already become universal for the what we call the Nicene Creed to be recited in mass. But some Western churches started adding these words because they felt this is good theology. And we want to make sure that we're teaching good theology to our people. But this was, in effect, unlawfully raising this private idea, this Western idea, to creedal status, or to what appeared to the people in the pews to be, to have the same authority as everything else in the creed. Which it didn't. This was a unilateral move on the part of churches in the West in utter disregard for the eastern half of the church. There was no consultation. There was no, what do you think, before we change the creed? Private opinion is one thing. We're free to believe that the Father, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. In fact, the 39 article says Anglicans believe that. Right? We're not talking about what is appropriate to believe. We're talking about what's appropriate to to recite in the creed. To alter the ecumenical creed that by this time the whole Christian world, even the, even the breakaways, the Nestorians and the Monophysites, they were all agreeing on this faith and reciting it. It was the common faith and that which bound the church and united her. 
Now, Rome herself wasn't guilty of this, by the way. The Church of Rome actually did start reciting the creed in their liturgy until like the 11th century. She was always slower to make to change than everything else. It was the other Western, the more Western churches that were part of her purview uh, under Rome's nose that was driving this change, and Rome defended them because Rome believed what they believed in terms of the faith, and so Rome came to their defense, and you can imagine what had happened. The East accused the West, and when I say East, I'm speaking of the Greek-speaking church. Think, uh, you know, Macedonia and, and Greece and, you know, Yugoslavia and Eastward, right? The West is everything else, the Latin-speaking part of the church. The East accused the West of adding to the creed without authority by an ecumenical council to do so. It was essentially an end run around conciliar authority. And so it became a matter of authority in church government. And this, when combined with other related disagreements, specifically about the power of the Pope and about the power of Constantinople, the new Rome, versus the old Rome, positions began to harden Personalities were bullheaded. Charlemagne famously had joy in shocking Eastern Christians by shoving the filioque in their faces. And both sides accused each other of heresy. In the year 1054, so in the 11th century, the year 1054, the East and the West formally excommunicated each other and split into two separate communions. Six centuries before, the Nestorians had been lost to the church, and that was like the body of Christ having its arm cut off because of the Assyrians and Iraq and Mesopotamia. Shortly thereafter, the Monophysites were pushed out, the Copts, the Syrians, the Armenians. That was like the church losing a leg. But now in the 11th century, what remains of the main body of Orthodox and Catholic Christianity is split in two, divided right down the middle from head to toe. Only the Protestant Reformation would outdo this in terms of damage to the unity of the body of Christ. This breach between East and West still exists today. It's the divide between the Orthodox, the East, and the Catholics, or Roman Catholic Church, in the West. I would add, and all of Western Christianity, including Protestantism, which, which stems from that. And the only thing, now, they didn't disagree about just this. There's other things. In fact, the, the, the role of the Pope is an even deeper issue. It's a much deeper problem. Does the Pope have authority of the entire church, what he claims? But the filioque, or the and the son, is the only theological difference that they have. At least the only theological difference that keeps those two communions apart. It keeps the two largest communions of Christians in the world out of communion with each other. And it's been doing that for a millennium. For a thousand years, these two communions have not been in communion with each other because of this one Latin word. And of course, the attitudes that prop it up on both sides uh, and that surrounded this struggle. This is a tragic, heartbreaking episode and a testimony to human failure. 
the most tragic thing of all is what it was about. Think of it. The greatest division in the history of Christianity. And it's a fight over the Holy Spirit. Don't you see the irony in that? The very spirit of love, the spirit of peace, of shalom, of communion, and the bond between brethren. That's what the spirit is supposed to do. The one who is to guarantee the the unity of the church, to unite the church together in a single body. The one who is, the the Bible tells us, is grieved when God's children contend with one another and when there is dissension and schism. Over the very one who should be our unity, somehow we've managed to make our grounds of disunity. By seeking to honor the Spirit in the way in which we did, both west and east, we have actually dishonored. The good news, and I here will end on a good note, is that attitudes are finally changing. They've been changing for a century now. Within the Anglican Communion, for a long, long time now, since 1888, our Communion has repeatedly said and promised and issued operating resolutions and agreements that we will drop those words because they offend our Eastern brethren. Not changing our theology. You don't have to change our theology. That's not what's being asked here. Just drop the words from the creed and thereby remove that barrier between us and the East. And the Anglican Communion has said that again and again throughout the 20th century as late as last October 2017. An agreement was signed with the East by some like, British bishops, I think. Uh, but again, this is a discussion that has been going on for over a thousand years and is still being actively discussed today. But now things are looking much more positive. The agreement was to drop the words. That we're, the, the Anglicans will stop uh, adding the words to the creed. The same recommendation was made in 1979 by the World Council of Churches, which Anglicans had a large part in. Um, the recommendation was to promote unity in the church, the West needs to drop these words. They're too offensive to the East. In about 15 years ago, the Roman Catholic Church reversed its old anathemas. So it no longer condemns the East for its theological position on this matter. That's a major step. And what's even more surprising is they actually said that from now on, we recommend, this is not an order, it's a recommendation, that any future Catholic translations of the Nicene Creed follow the original Greek. Translated, drop the works, because they're not there. In 2013, the ACNA, that's us, that's our group, voted to drop the words from our new prayer book that's currently in progress. Unfortunately, there was controversy and the bishops reversed course and backed down on that, because not all are in favor of making this change. Some think that real important theology is actually at stake. It really ultimately comes down, I believe, to how important the reunion of the churches is to us. I'll show you my colors. I think you probably already guessed. I think it's a big deal. So I want to end with the prayer that God would help us to honor the Holy Spirit that we love. That he would do so by giving strength and courage to Anglican and Catholic bishops to have the courage to finally end a nearly 1,500-year wrong. 
not the theology. We're free to believe what we may. We're free to continue to believe what the 39 articles say, that the Spirit proceeds from both Father and the Son. But by returning in our liturgy to the actual words of the historic creed, we would remove an unnecessary and tragic and age-old thorn of contention between brethren East and West. And I, for one, can think of no greater honor that we can give to the Holy Spirit than to remove discord and seek a restored unity to all who together worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So may our triune God, the most holy trinity, be with us, give us peace in our brokenness, and have mercy on us. In the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.